Hi everybody, Eric from Hit Subscribe here, and today's question. Oh, uh, I think I forgot to say, like I always say, another edition in the uh, Freelancer Q&A series, so like pretend I said that without this weird meta thing. Um, but anyway, today's question is, how do you vet your prospects as a freelancer, meaning how do you know if they're good or bad prospects? Um, this is kind of similar, and I'll um, on YouTube put up a link, uh, kind of similar to one that I did, I think, about, like, um, how do you avoid bad prospects, but, like, uh, I guess I don't remember offhand exactly what I did for that video, but in this case, I'll, I'll talk about uh, maybe a process for um, qualifying prospects in general as opposed to, like, just avoiding bad ones, like, how do you know whether they're good or bad, um, and I'll talk a little more, I guess, concretely about the process that I would recommend. And by the way, um, this is going to be true of a freelance practice. Uh, I think most of the things I'm saying here, true of a freelance practice or a services-based business or anything that you sell that has a high ticket enough price to justify, like, um, sales phone calls. So um, typically, like, if you're selling a book, you're not going to do sales calls for, like, a $10 book. But if you sell a service that's, you know, $100 a month or something, you might get on a sales call for that. Um, likewise, if you have like a SaaS that sells for $100 a month, um, you might have um, yourself be or hire sales development representatives, uh, roles like that. But this kind of applies across the board, the things that I'm going to uh, share here today about qualifying prospects. And um, it is a good and important question because um, you should fix it in your mind that not everybody should be a customer of your business. I know that if you're new in particular to being in business for yourself, there's this tendency to want to, um, you know, assume that like everybody in the world might be a potential customer, but not really. Um, there's very few um, types of businesses that's true of, you know, maybe if you're a soft drink or you sell eggs, I don't know. But um, <clears throat> if you're offering a service, it's pretty rare to offer a service that literally like anyone would want. So um, you really don't want to go into this assuming that you want everybody's business that might come to you because um, some will be a bad fit because you're not a good fit for them, meaning you can't really help them. Others will be a bad fit because they suck, uh, like there are people that you just don't want as customers. So I'm going to kind of walk through all of that and I guess just kind of top to bottom what my recommendations would be for how you go about qualifying prospective business. Uh, the first thing I'll say, um, so when I talk about newbie freelancers going off on their own, um, a lot of people make, in my opinion, the mistake of wanting to be a generalist. Um, like, so if you're in the software engineering world, what do you do? Oh, well, you know, I write code for anybody that wants any kind of application developed. Um, that's being a generalist. Like, I, kinda, I, do a, I do anything for anyone for money. Or I do anything as long as it's graphic design or as long as it's writing for money. Uh, I would say, first and foremost, if you want to disqualify bad prospects, you should get more niche than that. You should have a more targeted focus because um, one of the ways that you're able to evaluate whether you can help people or not is by having a niche. So, for instance, if you said that, um, let's say you're doing graphic design and you specifically wanted to do graphic design for, like, um, you know, doctor's offices or something, you would get good at that, even though that seems like you're eliminating needlessly like a whole segment of the population, like why not dentists or why not like Fortune 500 companies or something. Um, but if you focused in on that very specific segment of doctors, you would start to learn things that are subtle, like what kind of um, 
images comfort people when they're in the doctor's office waiting room or whatever. Um, so you develop this kind of institutional knowledge that makes you better at helping that client and then maybe not as good at helping other clients, but that's really the mo market you're focused on selling into. So if you have that niche and then um, people are calling you up, um, one of the easiest ways to disqualify businesses, are they in that niche or not? So if you are dedicated to helping doctors and you get a call from a lawyer, uh, you just say, no, this isn't going to be a good fit. I help doctors. So that seems like a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a softball or whatever, but I, I think it's very important. The more targeted you are in how you help people and what exactly you do, the easier it gets to be to identify who would be a good client and who wouldn't be. So for instance, if you just said, like, I do graphic design for anybody with money that's willing to pay, how do you identify good or bad clients in, in, from a pattern perspective and from an expertise perspective? So if you help a doctor and then a lawyer, um, you know, when a banker comes along and wants graphic design for their bank, like, how do you know whether you'll do that well or not? How do you know whether it'll be a good fit or not? Maybe you had a great relationship with the lawyer, a bad one with the doctor. That doesn't teach you anything about doing business with a banker. So, um, you know, I can't stress that enough, both for sales, for qualifying, and just for running your business in general. Absolutely, you should niche. Um, topic for another video, but I will bang on that drum all day, every day. Uh, the next thing that I'll say, um, kind of starting from the top where you first encounter people, is going to be if you have a website or maybe you haven't built that yet, you have a brochure or just kind of like an email you send out to people uh, talking about what you do and how you can help. Um, make that sort of specific, ideally about your niche if you have one, um, but make it kind of like honest and frank. So here's what I can do. Uh, here's who I help. Here are my limitations. Here's who I don't help. So if you kind of um, establish all of those things up front, what you can do is get people to self-select when they encounter your website or whatever it is. So for instance, let's go back to this world where you do graphic design for doctor's offices. If you put up a website that talks all about um, how that's what you do, that's the kind of customer that you focus on. Um, you know, here are some case studies and testimonials about doctor's offices that we've helped in the past with great graphic design for whatever goal that accomplishes. Um, what happens then is if I am a lawyer and I'm on this site and I'm reading all about how you uh, help doctors, I'm going to realize, oh, I'm in the wrong place. This isn't somebody I should reach out to. They don't help me. And um, if you're in generalist mindset or if you're really like struggling to drum up business, that might sound crazy. But trust me, in the long run, it's for the best. Because um, if you are unclear with your marketing and messaging about who you help and why and what you can do, what happens is, um, especially if you start to take off and get some notoriety, you can get buried in um, you know, bad email communication or bad calls, meaning uh, unqualified, unlikely to lead to productive business. So if you start some business, I, the, the simplest way to think about this is imagine that you hang out your shingle to do graphic design or to do um, software development or something. Uh, one of the easiest ways to reason about or like examples of bad business is people that really want to undercut you on price. So somebody that's like, oh, so you do websites? Can I give you like 50 bucks to make a website? That's an example of something you shouldn't even waste your time on with an email. So um, qualifying business is important because um, in that example, you don't even want to respond to somebody that like has no money to spend or is a complete mismatch. So going back to the example of um, marketing to doctors and having a lawyer come along, any email you exchange with that lawyer who you're never going to help is a waste of your time. So the sooner that person um, disqualifies, the better. The sooner they figure out not to reach out to you, the better. 
um, you don't want to waste time. That's really what qualifying good prospects and disqualifying bad ones is all about throughout your whole uh, process from uh, converting people from having heard of you all the way down to having a sales call and then becoming a customer. At every stage, yes, you want to bring the good ones along and hopefully do business with you, but you also want to push out the ones that aren't going to be a good fit. Um, so to recap, you want to have a niche and some positioning because that's going to help you overall and with uh, qualification. And then you want the first place they encounter you, your website, um, you know, if you're going out and doing marketing activities like giving talks, wherever they encounter you, you want to be very clear about who you help and who you don't. Um, so the next thing I would say is um, with that in place, as you start to move people along, like you have a website, they reach out to you through the website or something, now you're going to start to have a relationship with them. And even if they might be kind of like a good customer on paper, maybe there's something about the way they conduct themselves or the nature of their business where um, in theory they could be a good customer, but you don't actually want to work with them. So one thing that I recommend is um, the idea in general of having a lead scoring process. So as people move um, from you know being prospects, as you start to interact with them and qualify them, you want to have um, some concept of lead scoring. And I don't just mean, I mean, if you just had uh, something where you were saying like, this seems like a good fit or not, that's better than nothing. But I would suggest actually sitting down and creating a numerical way of scoring leads. So for instance, a very simple example of this might be um, that you target companies of a certain size and you want to do projects of a certain budget. So it might just be a simple yes or no and you count up the yeses like, is the person from a company of the size I'm targeting? Yes, uh, give them a point. Is the person I'm talking to an actual buyer or decision maker? Or is it somebody that you know they're delegating this to? If it's a buyer or decision maker, give them a point. Um, is it at a company of the right size, the right revenue? So ask all of these questions. If this seems a little daunting, um, what you can do to get started is go back through either past clients that you've enjoyed working with or that have gone well, and then ones that haven't, and assess why is that? What was it I liked about this engagement? What made it profitable? What was good? And then when you find those common threads, that's how you're going to want to look at future leads and score them. So for instance, if you found that every time you're dealing with um, somebody who's a director level or above, you have a much shorter sales call and a much more productive engagement than if you're dealing with somebody that's a line manager or an individual contributor, then maybe that's a factor in how you're scoring this lead. This is more likely to be a good engagement. Whatever that might be, it's really going to vary from um, person to person and business to business. But um, the important tactic here for qualifying and disqualifying potential leads is to go back, look at your history, do an honest assessment of what has gone well and what hasn't, and then use that to project future data. Uh, if you are just getting into business for yourself, to some extent you can do this with past employers. Um, and some of it might be what I'll call like work-life stuff or like misery index. So, um, you know, were you micromanaged in the past? And if so, can you recognize signs on a sales call or something of a micromanager? Um, did you work for a certain kind of company in the past, like a startup, and maybe that didn't go well, so maybe you're qualifying leads based on, like, are they a more established company? So, yeah, go back, look at prior history, and then create this kind of, you know, almost BuzzFeed-style quiz of lead scoring 
There are more sophisticated ways to do lead scoring. You can automate it. You can do all sorts of things. But having a good, like, small set of questions that you ask and then tally up the yes responses and give them a score is a great start. That's going to put you ahead of probably 80% of the pack in terms of how well you're qualifying leads. Um, so with that in mind, you're going to continue to evaluate the lead score throughout the sales process. So um, if a company reaches out through your website and wants to schedule a, a sales call, uh, you can learn certain things about that company just by Googling it, but then you're going to have other things that you'll get to know about um, as you move along, as you correspond with them over email, as you actually have one or more sales calls with them, you're going to learn about them and your rapport with them. Um, so during that correspondence, once you've done a little diligence and filled out some of your lead scoring, the next thing I would do is start to look for um, elements of your lead scoring that happened during the interpersonal uh, interactions, and maybe some that I would consider just based on my long previous history of consulting and doing sales. I, I, for the last couple of years, I've done like two, three sales calls a week, so I've gotten very used to this. Look for red flags. Um, one common red flag that you'll see uh, that I would definitely put a, a negative mark in just about any circumstance is, are you talking to a potential lead whose hair is on fire? So um, they reach out there <clears throat> through the website and, and they say like, uh, I need to do a sales call tomorrow, or we gotta get going right away if they're starting to put a lot of time pressure on you. That's often not a good sign um, because if there's a lot of pressure on them and they're externalizing it to you, that's going to have a high uh, misery factor. So uh, you might take on that business. Maybe you even specialize in hair on fire situations, but you're going to need a way to set expectations and boundaries because a client like that typically can be pretty miserable to work with. Uh, another couple of things that I would suggest looking for as a way of kind of universally disqualifying business, um, do they try to circumvent the set process that you've established? So if you say, for instance, that my process for working with customers, um, you reach out through my site, we schedule a discovery call, and then if it makes sense, we schedule another call after that. If they say something like, I don't want to do that, let's just do the one call or whatever, I don't know that that's a deal breaker, but um, they're setting the tone for the relationship, which is, I don't respect your process, we're going to do things my way. So understand that somebody who approaches you that way, um, they're not going to pre-sales and sales, as a sign of how they're going to behave throughout the relationship. And I guess I can generalize then whether it's hair on fire, whether it's not respecting your boundaries, whatever it is they're doing before they become your customer, assume that's how they're going to behave once they're your customer. Don't assume that I'll just, you know, say whatever to win the business and then kind of renegotiate and things will get better from there. Uh, job interviews kind of work that way. Uh, when you're interviewing for a job, you go put on a suit, you make yourself look way better than you are. And then the company, likewise, cleans up all the dirty laundry and makes themselves look way better than they are. And so you both kind of tell each other these fibs, and then life is different once you actually start working there. Um, things are less sort of like that uh, in the business world. People aren't really as much bothering to put on these weird fronts. Um, so they will tip their hand to their behavior more as to how they're going to treat you uh, once you start working together. Uh, that said, there is one kind of um, respect with which that isn't true, with which it might be more like this, let's all put our best foot forward and pretend a little bit um, to a sales interview. And that's typically that both you as the vendor and them as the um, customer uh, probably want things to work. So you want the business, they want a problem solved. 
And that might lead to a tendency for both of you to overlook the other one's flaws to some degree. In fact, this is the impulse for you to be like, oh yeah, it's an emergency, they need to talk to me right away, but I'm sure once we engage, they'll respect my boundaries. You're looking past their flaws. They might also look past your flaws where you say, um, I do X, but I don't do Y. If what they really want is Y, they might think, oh sure, they say that now, but I'm sure they'll do Y. So be mindful of the degree to which you might both be um, massaging a non-fit into place. And so the advice I'll give you on this perspective is, um, in the moment, you're often going to want to assume everything will work out. You're going to want to win the business, but it's not just about money and winning the business. You're going to genuinely want to help those people and think you can solve their problems. And so there's a tendency to assume things will work. You need to kind of decouple from that moment emotionally and um, figure out a way of how to assess things a little bit more um, antiseptically, if you will. So number one, I would suggest recording sales calls. And number two, I would um, have a section in your lead scoring that you fill out maybe the day after you do a sales call. So the next day, record that sales call and then be looking at it through dispassionate eyes where you're just looking to fill out some more questions in the lead scoring. And that kind of takes you out of the moment where maybe the adrenaline's going a little on a sales call or maybe you've really gotten into your pitch and you're feeling chatty um, with you know an overnight behind you to kind of regroup and look at it and then watch yourself on the sales call. Um, you'll be able to, to look at that a little uh, more dispassionately. Um, and then finally, I think I said this in the video I'm uh, where I talked about uh, how to avoid bad clients. Um, never need the business. So this is easier said than done. It kind of has to do with how you manage your lead flow into your business. Um, and it has to do with maybe how much runway you build up if you're going off on your own. But you never want to absolutely need any particular engagement. You, you shouldn't need a home run to win. And the reason I say this is because if you're desperate for business, all of this is going to go out the window. You're going to ignore all concepts of qualifying or disqualifying or anything, and you just do anything that comes along. So you almost can't disqualify bad business or qualify good business if you're desperate. And you need to walk that all the way back to not being desperate. And when you're not desperate, you will go into any given sales conversation or sales process saying, it would be nice if this worked out because it would mean more business, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. And the reason that's so important is because that lets you um, kind of be true to the process you've created about qualifying and disqualifying. It only works if you are willing to disqualify. It only works if you say, in any given month, I need to land two customers. Um, so to land two customers, I need to probably have four or five sales calls. And in order to land four or five sales calls, I need maybe 10 inquiries to my site. If you have all those figures worked out and you have a steady um, flow of leads, that means that you're going to go into any given sales call knowing that there's a 40 to 50% chance this will work or it won't. So if it's a tire kicker, if it's somebody who's cheap, if it's somebody who's not a fit, you're thinking, eh, this is, you know, one of the two or three sales calls that won't work out this month, whatever. So um, you get into this mindset where it's almost like moving things along on a conveyor belt. And in order to be in that mindset, you have to not need any given piece of business. Uh, the last thing that I'll say, the very last thing, is once you have moved everything along and you're actually going into an engagement, um, 
you've done your best to qualify or disqualify, so you should feel pretty good um, that once you're engaging, it's a good prospect. If you've stuck true to your uh, lead score and your lead qualification, then you should feel pretty good about um, the next steps of an engagement. That said, one thing I can't stress enough is if you're going in cold, if it's not a warm referral or someone you've done business with in the past or, or what have you, I would definitely recommend structuring a trial or some kind of low stakes initial engagement. So if you're selling application development, maybe you actually structure a discovery engagement for you know 5,000 or some kind of low stakes um, figure rather than just going into that app dev um, right out of the gate with like a you know $300,000 contract. If you do that, um, it's kind of a fail fast sort of thing. So money is actually changing hands. There, the stakes aren't zero, but they're also not super high. I would recommend doing a trial or an initial engagement um, that is something that you would be willing to walk away from the money. So if it's a $5,000 discovery engagement, you show up, you go on site, or you, know, you run your uh, half-day remote webinar to do the discovery, and things just get off the rails and they're horrible to you, it should be an amount of money where you are willing to say, I am out of here, I don't need this, here is a full refund, lose my number. Structure it that way, and um, then you have this kind of off-ramp if things do go horribly sideways. Now imagine if instead of that $5,000 engagement, it was the $300,000 contract, you'd cleared your calendar for the next six months, you told all other prospects, sorry, I'm busy, then you go into that discovery call and it's awful, but you have um, ink on paper for $300,000 and a fully cleared dance card and that's all you're committed to, you are going to have every incentive to keep going along and be miserable and have this horrible engagement. So. I can't stress enough how valuable I found it over the course of time to build on trust in both directions, often by structuring a low stakes engagement up front where you kind of get to know each other with actual money changing hands, with non-zero stakes, but not with horribly high stakes either. So um, I guess kind of top to bottom from first becoming aware of each other until actually closing the deal and even doing a first engagement, those are a lot of the tactics that I use for uh, qualifying and disqualifying business. So uh, hopefully that helps. I hope these videos in general are helping some of you, and uh, I will catch you next time.